Is he a sly devil or a saint? That headline flashed across the front page of the Birmingham News during the 1949 murder trial of Herbert Hoover Gentry. 20-year-old Gentry stood accused of killing two women, his 19-year-old wife, Floney, and her 23-year-old best friend, Louise. Their bodies were discovered in a cesspool near the Gentry home. Gentry was partially deaf, and his murder trial was the state's first trial of a deaf person tried on a capital offense with an interpreter in the courtroom. Gentry was an attractive young man. His photo was featured in Alabama newspapers, and women swooned over him as they crowded into and around the courtroom when the murder trial began. Many of them said in interviews with the local papers that this beautiful man looked like a saint, not the devil people were making him out to be. But we all know, if you judge from appearances, you seldom find the truth. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the mystery of the Alabama cesspool murders. Herbert Hoover Gentry was born in East Central Alabama, near Talladega, in 1929. One of four siblings, Gentry was partially deaf, and his younger brother, Frank, was deaf. The stigma, prejudice, and communication barriers Herbert and his brother faced still exist today. But for Frank Gentry, it led to institutionalization in Bryce Hospital in Tuscaloosa, and Herbert feared he would be sent to Bryce as well. Bryce opened in 1861, was known as Alabama's insane asylum when Frank was admitted in the mid-1930s. According to the American Journal of Psychiatry, modern medical studies have found deaf people suffer from mental health issues at about twice the rates of the general population. Communication barriers and stigma can leave a deaf person feeling completely shut off from the hearing world, which can contribute to depression, substance abuse, or in some cases, violent behavior. But in the 1930s, being a deaf person in and of itself could mean you were classified as insane. Frank Gentry struggled at Bryce because he rarely saw his family. Herbert struggled as well, but found some hope when his mother sent him to the Alabama School for the Deaf and Blind in Talladega. Herbert's teachers described him as a hardworking young man who was eager to learn, and he was well-liked. He was partially deaf, and teachers helped him further develop his speech. Herbert was able to develop language skills and spoke in a low voice. Within a few years, his brother Frank was released from Bryce. His mother Nellie sent Frank to the state school for the deaf and blind, where she hoped Frank would thrive like his brother. Their hope for the future was shattered when their father died. Nellie Gentry would marry another man, and her second husband was a violent man who refused to work. This, coupled with his mother's refusal to understand the challenges he and his brother faced as hearing-impaired children, seemed to change everything for Herbert Gentry. 
Records from the Alabama School for the Deaf and Blind show Gentry could be defiant and seem to have behavioral issues, which points to what's known as oppositional defiant disorder, a common condition, especially in deaf children, who display more behavior problems based on developments and environments. In Herbert and Frank's case, they had hearing parents who did not make an effort to communicate with them. Naturally, that can cause frustration and make it appear as though a child is acting out. But sometimes deaf children are frustrated that they can't communicate with someone and feel further shut out by the hearing world. This can cause disappointments, anger, and a feeling of isolation that can have a lifelong impact on developments and relationships. As Herbert Gentry's mother struggled through her second marriage, he was forced to leave school at 16 to work full-time in a cotton mill. His wages provided for his mom and his siblings. He told his teachers he hoped to return to school, but that never happened. He moved on from his job at the cotton mill and started working at a local foundry helping produce metal castings. The president of a company he worked for, Mr. R.A. Donaldson, said Herbert Gentry was one of the best workers he ever had. He described him as competent and loyal and said he worked complicated heavy machines with great skill. He also said Herbert Gentry was a likable guy, which was what Floney Adams thought when she first met Herbert in 1947. Herbert's aunt had visited Floney's aunts in Rome, Georgia, and when she returned, she brought a picture of Floney, thinking the two might be a match. Weeks later, Herbert took a train to Rome, Georgia to meet Floney, and it was love at first sight. Within a week, Herbert returned to Rome, and he and Floney eloped, much to the shock and outrage of her parents. Floney packed up her clothes and headed back to Talladega, where she and Herbert settled into their new life together, staying in the home of Herbert's aunt until they rented a home of their own. This blissful life as newlyweds was short-lived. The couple constantly fought over money. Floney wanted the dream house and car and fine things she had always thought would come with marriage, but at 19, Herbert Gentry wasn't earning much as a foundry worker. About 16 months into the marriage, Herbert came home from work early and found Floney kissing another man. She immediately ran out the door along with this man and fled to a neighbor's home. Herbert followed and tried to convince Floney to come home, but she refused and he threatened to kill her. The neighbor called police, who encouraged the couple to find a place to stay for the night until they could work things out the next day. Floney took a train back to her family in Georgia. While back at home, she spent time with her old friend, Louise Deal. The two had met when they were in school and had been best friends ever since. Two weeks after that explosive argument with Herbert, Floney agreed to see her husband if he came to Rome, which he did several times over the next month. And Floney told him she wasn't coming back to Alabama. Herbert promised things would change and 
he would find a way to buy her all the things she wanted and take care of her. Eventually, those promises convinced Floney to come back to Talladega. But when she returned, her friend Louise came along. This caused tension between Floney and Herbert, who accused his wife of showing off in front of her friend when Floney argued with him. Neighbors heard the two fighting, even overheard Herbert threaten to beat or kill Floney if she didn't stop treating him with such disrespect. And he asked her to send her friend, who he referred to as that girl, back to Georgia. Instead, Floney and Louise moved out of the Gentry house and into Mrs. Cox's boarding house. Mrs. Cox had the typical rules of conduct you'd expect in the 1940s. Women weren't allowed to have men in their room. Herbert Gentry visited the boarding house once when the women were staying there. He was met at the front door by Mrs. Cox, and he explained he had food and cigarettes he wanted to drop off for his wife. He told Mrs. Cox Floney was staying at the boarding house because she couldn't treat him right. Mrs. Cox was frustrated when she realized how complicated the situation was between this couple, and even more frustrated when Floney and Louise refused to follow her house rules. Mrs. Cox found different men in the room several times, and eventually the women were informed they needed to find a new place to stay due to their violation of the Cox Code. 19-year-old Floney and 23-year-old Louise Deal headed back to stay in the Gentry home on February 4, 1949. Herbert welcomed Floney home, but told her she needed to figure out when that girl Louise was going back to Georgia. The following day, Floney and Louise suggested they head out for some fun. It was a Saturday, and Floney told Herbert she wanted to go to a popular Pell City tourist camp and rent a cabin for the night. She invited their neighbor, Frank Adair, to come along to keep Louise occupied. Frank Adair was the gentry's neighbor and landlord. The 47-year-old contractor was known as a bit of a ladies' man, much to the frustration of his faithful wife. Around 5 p.m., the foursome arrived at the camp and rented two cabins. Herbert and Louise were seen in the camp store, and when they returned to the cabins, Herbert was heard beating on the door of the gentry's cabin. And Louise started yelling and banging on that door as well. This went on for about 15 minutes before Frank Adair opened the door. Herbert Gentry walked inside, found his wife, and accused her of sleeping with Adair. They argued, and minutes later, the camp operator demanded the foursome leave everyone in peace and vacate the property. When they left the camp, they headed back to Talladega, went to a local cafe for steaks and dinner. Floney Adams and Louise Deal were last seen alive when they walked out of the cafe with Herbert Gentry and Frank Adair around 10 p.m. that Saturday night. By Monday morning, Floney's family feared something horrible had happened to her. Floney's parents arrived in Talladega on Monday, February 8th, 
to visit their daughter. They first headed to Mrs. Cox's boarding house, but learned Floney and Louise had moved out, so they headed to the Gentry's house. Floney wasn't there, and neither was Herbert. They did go inside because the couple never locked their door. They figured they would wait around and see if Floney showed up to the house. Inside, Mrs. Adams noticed some kind of smear on the floor in the living room. She noticed more little colored-looking smears near the couch. When she leaned down for a closer look, she told her husband the smears kind of looked like blood. She then realized there were smears and drops leading all the way back into the bedroom. She thought it was odd and left the gentry home afraid that something wasn't right. Mrs. Adams called police, voiced her concern, and they told her there was no evidence Floney was missing and suggested she may have left town with her friend. Around 8 o'clock Tuesday morning, the Adams returned to the Gentry's and found no sign of Floney or Herbert. Mr. Adams did seek out Frank Adair when he heard he was the man who was last seen with the Gentry's and Louise Saturday night. He said the last time he saw Louise and Floney was when they left the cafe and he headed home to his wife. On Wednesday morning, the Adams returned again to the Gentry house where they found a message from Herbert. Their suitcases were on the front porch, along with a note saying, quote, Don't worry about Floney. If I hear from her before you do, I'll send you a letter. Floney and Louise had not been seen in four days, and Mrs. Adams was certain it was blood she had seen in the Gentry home. The Adams headed to police headquarters and demanded someone help them. Mrs. Adams made it clear that she needed to find her daughter and Louise Deal because Gentry's last letter said Louise was trying to get Floney to leave him. Police Chief Willis Dean met with Mr. and Mrs. Adams and explained he sent patrolman Carl Jacks and Walter Thackerson to search for Herbert Gentry. Chief Dean then headed to the Gentry's, where he found the home to be in a high state of disorder. The chief saw the smears Mrs. Adams had mentioned and agreed it looked like blood. Patrolman Jacks and Thackerson tracked Herbert Gentry to the local train depot. He had a suitcase with him and was standing at the ticket counter when they approached and informed him they needed to talk about his wife's disappearance. Police Chief Dean returned to headquarters to question Herbert Gentry while officers Jacks and Thackerson returned to the Gentry home to conduct a more thorough search of the house and the surrounding property. The officers followed the traces of blood from inside the home to outside, about 60 feet from the door. The blood traces ended at a cesspool in the Gentry's backyard. An officer removed the wooden cover and used a pole to probe the cesspool. He poked at something soft, and the more he poked, the more he believed he may have found human remains. He was right. Coroner J.M. Hughes oversaw the removal of the remains, which required grappling hooks be brought in. 
News spread quickly around town and an estimated 500 people crowded around the Gentry home to try to catch a glimpse of the bodies of the women being removed. Coroner Hughes' preliminary examination of the bodies noted Mrs. Gentry had been shot once and Louise Deal was shot three times. Both women had been stripped before they were placed in the cesspool. Back at the police station, Chief Dean questioned Herbert Gentry about the last time he had seen Floney or Louise, and he asked him about the state of his marriage. Herbert said Floney had moved out for a while, but said the night she had gone missing, she had come home, and they had reunited. When word reached Chief Dean that the bodies of the missing women had been discovered, Dean broke the news to Gentry. He knew Gentry was partially deaf, and he always spoke in a low voice, so the chief leaned in closer and asked if Gentry understood him. Gentry looked up and calmly replied, Yes. Chief Dean started pushing Gentry harder. He asked if he knew what happened to the women, if he was involved in their murder. At first, Herbert Gentry denied knowing anything, but over the next few hours... His story changed several times. Gentry told the chief he had come home around midnight on Saturday and discovered his wife and that girl Louise were dead. When he saw their bodies, he was scared people would think he had killed them. So he dragged them to the back door and then everything went blank. He had no idea how those bodies ended up in the cesspool. One hour later... As the questions kept coming from Chief Dean, Herbert Gentry confessed to the murders, saying he and Floney and that girl Louise were drinking a lot on Saturday night. The women fell asleep for a little while, and Gentry sat in his favorite chair reading a comic book, Crime Doesn't Pay, and a confession magazine, I Killed the Woman I Love. Gentry said he felt inspired even directed, to kill his wife and that girl because of what he read that night. The women had been sleeping on the couch in the living room. He woke them up, then headed back to his bedroom to retrieve his gun, a 38 caliber Belgium pistol. Herbert Gentry explained he returned to the living room, sat in his favorite chair across from the sofa, and claimed to ask his wife why she always was so mad at him. Louise Dill saw Gentry's gun and jokingly challenged him to shoot her. And as Gentry put it, that's what he did. Herbert told police he shot Louise Dill once in the head, then shot Floney once in the head. And Gentry said he turned to Louise and shot her twice in the stomach. It was still dark, so he said he stripped the women, dragged them outside, and dumped them into the cesspool. He waited until early Sunday morning to start a fire in the backyard pit to burn the women's clothes. Ginger explained he left the house and spent all of Sunday with his aunt, then spent time at his house on Monday and Tuesday, but had managed to avoid Mr. and Mrs. Adams. On Wednesday, 
He spent the day at his brother-in-law's house before going back to his house, grabbing some things and packing a suitcase. He headed to the train depot and planned to take a train somewhere so he could start a new life. When asked by Police Chief Dean why it had come to this, these women murdered, thrown into a cesspool as if they were waste. Gentry initially said he had done it because he was drinking. He was just out of his mind that night. An hour later, he again changed his story and said his wife's nagging, combined with his love of crime magazines and comic books, motivated him to kill. In fact, Gentry's written confession says reading crime confession magazines gave him funny feelings and chill bumps. And he then started thinking about killing his wife. He thought about killing her for a year. Gentry claimed those crime books had just made him mean all over. Gentry's confession, the discovery of the bodies, evidence found in Gentry's possession and at the Gentry's home, seemed to make this an open and shut case. When police tracked down Herbert Gentry at the train station, he had a small blue suitcase with him. Inside, they found a pistol and a blood-stained shirt and trousers, along with a Bible and a photo album filled with photos of Floney and Louise. Police also found charred remnants of women's clothing, not far from the cesspool where Floney and Louise had been discovered. Herbert Hoover Gentry was indicted on two charges of first-degree murder on February 13, 1949. Gentry's rambling and long confession, along with his hearing impairment, led Circuit Judge W.D. DeBartelaben to order a sanity hearing for Gentry on March 1st. Three days later, a court-appointed commission of three Talladega doctors submitted a report to the judge stating there were reasonable grounds for believing Herbert Gentry was insane at the time of the murders. They recommended Gentry immediately be committed to Bryce Hospital, where he could be observed and examined to determine his mental state. Gentry was admitted to Bryce the same day, and four months later, a panel of doctors filed the report with the court. They ruled Herbert Gentry was sane, and in their opinion was, quote, sane and competent at the time of the commission of the crime for which he was charged. The judge ruled Gentry would first stand trial for the murder of Louise Deal. Despite the sanity board ruling that Gentry was sane, his defense entered a plea of not guilty and not guilty by reason of insanity. The trial began in Talladega County on September 26, 1949. The case made history in Alabama because this was the first time a deaf person stood trial on a capital offense with an interpreter on hand. Throughout the trial, expert interpreter C.E. Jones from Lumberton, North Carolina, ensured communication was clear for all parties in the courtroom. Circuit Judge DeBartelaben presided over the trial with Solicitor J.J. Cockrell and County Solicitor Harry Till prosecuting for the state. They began by entering into evidence four written statements obtained from Herbert Gentry 
on the day Louise and Floney's bodies were discovered, including Gentry's confession. Gentry's defense team, Byron Boyette and Alvin Mosley, objected, saying Gentry's confession had been beaten out of him by police chief Dean and officers Jax and Thackerson. The defense claimed Gentry never would have confessed to such a heinous crime had he not been under duress. The prosecution countered that Gentry had willingly returned to the scene of the crime, recreated the scene with a shocked officer Carl Jacks, who took detailed notes as Gentry confessed to everything. The judge ruled the confession be entered into evidence. In opening statements, the prosecution laid out Gentry's motive to murder Louise Deal, noting Louise had convinced Floney to leave Herbert for good. Gentry had threatened to harm her multiple times, and Louise had threatened to fight back and protect Floney. A witness claimed Louise Deal drew a knife on Gentry in a cafe when he threatened her friend. This witness said he saw Louise place the knife near Gentry's neck, when the argument escalated and they were asked to leave and calm down. Now, prosecutors said Gentry had laid out the murders in his own confession to police, and it was clear he had made good on his promise to one day kill Floney. The prosecution pointed to a letter Gentry sent to his mother-in-law on February 1st, just four days before the women went missing. A letter that explained Floney was about to leave him forever, And he said he didn't care anymore. He said he was going to find himself a better woman than Floney. Prosecution theorized Gentry sent that letter knowing he was going to kill his wife and had to kill Louise because she was the reason Floney was leaving. Prosecutors also entered Gentry's suitcase and its contents into evidence. The assistant state phlebotomist testified that stains found on Gentry's shirts and trousers in that suitcase were human blood. As Harry Till put it, that blood cried out for justice for Louise Deal and Floney Gentry. The defense worked to counter the picture that was painted of Herbert Gentry as a cold-blooded killer. Boyette and Mosley portrayed Gentry as a good, hard-working young man who had challenges in his life. John Haynes, an official of the Alabama School for the Deaf and Blind, testified that people who are deaf have a tendency to be more sensitive and occasionally take offense more readily than hearing people. Haynes also maintained that a person who is deaf can be less stable emotionally than a hearing person. Under cross-examination, County Solicitor Harry Till asked if emotional challenges or even insanity is a defense for murder in the state of Alabama. Haynes replied that he didn't think it was, but also said he wasn't a legal expert. The defense worked to paint Herbert Gentry as a man who was wronged by the woman he married, a woman whose friend Louise came to town and helped destroy their marriage. The defense went straight to shaming the victims calling into question their morals as he called on Mrs. Cox to testify about the men Louise and Floney entertained at the boarding house. A cafe operator also took the stand and testified that the women came into his cafe in Talladega 
quite often. He said he didn't approve of their conduct because he knew Floney Gentry was married and he had seen her and Louise Deal leave his cafe in the company of other men. There was quite a buzz around the courtroom on the first day Herbert Gentry took the stand in his own defense. Gentry had built up a following of women who liked him and felt he was innocent and had been hurt by his wife's actions. They were in and around the courtroom throughout the trial, but the crowd was at overflow on the first day Gentry testified. Through a combination of sign language with interpreter C.E. Jones and Gentry's voice, Gentry took the stand. Initially, the jury mentioned it was hard to hear him because Gentry's voice was so low. The judge ordered a sound system and microphone be brought into the courtroom to aid in the testimony. Gentry shocked the court when his defense asked if he was guilty of murder, and he replied no, and then accused Frank Adair of killing that girl Louise Dill and his wife, Floney. Under intense questioning and cross-examination for four days, Gentry said he was beaten by police until he confessed to a crime Frank Adair committed. A crime Frank Adair forced him to cover up. Gentry said that after the fiasco, being kicked out of the camp and having dinner at the cafe, the foursome had been drinking all night. They returned to the Gentry home for more whiskey and coffee. Herbert saw Adair kissing Floney in their kitchen, which caused the men to fight. Eventually, Herbert said he made his way back to his bedroom and passed out. At some point that night, he claimed he was awakened by stomping, loud vibrations on the floor. Sounds he said Floney would make if he was in the back of the house and couldn't hear her calling for him. He thought he heard other sounds but wasn't sure. He walked from the bedroom into the living room where he claimed he saw Frank Adair holding a pistol, standing over Floney Gentry and Louise Deal. Both of the women had been shot. Herbert claimed Frank Adair pointed the gun at him and was about to shoot when Herbert vowed he'd never tell anyone what happened. Frank agreed to let him live because they were friends. But Herbert said he was forced to help him drag the bodies of his wife and her friend back into the Gentry's bedroom, where they removed the women's clothing. Frank Adair dragged Floney Gentry's body to the outdoor bathroom, followed by Herbert Gentry dragging Louise Deal's body. Herbert said he and Frank placed Floney Gentry's body headfirst into the cesspool, followed by Louise Deal. Gentry maintained he was scared of Adair, who had a gun on him the entire time they were disposing of Floney and Louise's body. But under cross-examination, he contradicted himself, saying after he promised Frank he wouldn't tell anyone he murdered the women, Frank Adair put his gun on the kitchen table before the men headed out to dispose of the corpses. Following Herbert Gentry's testimony, the prosecution called Frank Adair to the stand. Adair denied he had anything to do with the murders, had no motive to kill Floney or Louise. He admitted he had gone with the Gentrys and Louise to the Pell City camp on the night of February 5th, and he was honest about why he was there. He said he wanted to sleep with one of the women 
and it didn't matter which one. He was just there for a good time. But he claimed he never slept with either one of them because they were kicked out of the camp. He again admitted he was at the cafe, spent hours there with a couple and with Louise, had steaks and drinks. And Adair said after that, he went home. He claimed the story Gentry told about everyone heading back to the Gentry place afterwards was a preposterous lie from Herbert Gentry's favorite crime magazines. Adair claimed there was no fight in the Gentry's house with Herbert, no kissing Floney, and he definitely did not shoot and kill Floney Gentry or Louise Dale. The person who backed Frank Adair's alibi late on the night of February 5th was the woman he was known to have cheated on, his wife. Mrs. Adair testified and confirmed her husband came home just after 10 p.m., the night of the murders. The trial continued for two weeks with closing arguments on October 12th. Attorney Al Mosley pleaded with the jury to find his client not guilty. He said Herbert Gentry was innocent of the murder of Louise Deal and Floney Gentry, and his confession proved his innocence because some details were nonsensical, showed he was under pressure and scared because the confession had been beaten out of him. Mosley pointed to Prosecutor Teal's statement, saying blood found on Herbert Gentry's stained shirt and trousers and in the Gentry home cried out for justice for Louise and Floney. Mosley agreed, saying vengeance and justice were owed to the person who murdered these women. But he noted the blood cried out for the jury to make sure Gentry spilled that blood. If there was any doubt, Mosley reminded them they had to find Gentry not guilty. That night, the jury got the case, deliberated for four and a half hours. When the verdict was read, Herbert Hoover Gentry was convicted of first-degree manslaughter. Gentry was sentenced to three years in Kilby Prison. Inmate number 57339 was given credit for time served during his trial and released from jail on February 28, 1952. Herbert Gentry still faced trial for the murder of his wife, Floney. Reporters had pressed prosecutors about the timing of the second trial since the day after Gentry was sentenced for Louise Deal's murder in 1949, they were told it would most likely come in the next term of court. A year and then two years on, they were told the same thing. By 1955, the then 25-year-old Herbert Hoover Gentry had not been tried for the murder of Floney. When reporters pushed the court for an answer on when the cesspool murderer would be tried again, they were told the trial couldn't move forward because it was proving difficult to find an interpreter who could be in court for the duration of a new trial. And then, nothing. No record of a second trial or any attempt at justice for Floney Gentry. Herbert Hoover Gentry changed his name to Eugene Gentry. The man who had been photographed holding the crime magazine that he claimed inspired the murders, even posed holding the pistol he used to kill Louise and Floney 
as he grinned for the camera? Well, he moved on with his life. Moved back to his hometown, where he married again. Went back to work as a machinist. Women had swooned over him in the courtroom and vowed he was a saint. But as the saying goes, only those who don't wish to see can be deceived. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. You can see photos of Herbert Gentry posing for the camera in the Alabama courtroom, along with sources and more about this episode in the show notes at southernmysteries.com. This podcast is independent, and all the research, writing, the recording, and producing of episodes, it's done by a single staff member, that's me, along with a growing group of supporters on Patreon, including my newest patrons. Thank you to Dan from Oakland, California, Gary from Pascagoula, Mississippi, and Hayden from Haynesville, Alabama. When you join me on Patreon, like Dan, Gary, and Hayden have, all of my Southern Mysteries patrons get access to monthly bonus content called Southern Mysteries Shorts. You can join in supporting the show and catch up on Southern Mystery Shorts at patreon.com slash southern mysteries. And don't forget to subscribe to the show so you never miss a new episode. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>